Hi, this is Johnny Whitaker, or John O. Whitaker Jr., remembered from Family Affairs, Sigmund and the Sea Monsters. And you are listening to Then Is Now Podcast. Welcome to 13 Days of Halloween. <laughs> Hello and welcome to this special episode of Then Is Now Podcast. I am your host, Rigor. Today, I am joined by John Grace, host of Midnight Movie Cowboys. Glad you could join me today, John. Oh yeah, good to be here. Awesome, awesome. Now folks, just want to let you know that John joined my co-host Patsy and I on a two-part episode of my other show, The East Meets the West, where we delve deep into the Shaw Brothers Company and Spaghetti Westerns as a whole. These episodes are a primer for people who haven't listened to it, as well as providing more information to our regu- regular listeners. So if you haven't had the chance, check it out. So, John, why don't you tell the listeners about your show? Uh, Midnight Movie Cowboys. It is uh, hosted by myself, uh, Stuart Balk, who is in Australia, and Hunter Dusing who uh, is in Texas. So it's kind of this uh, wide-ranging global show. And uh, we, we have listeners all over the place. And we typically will review a unique film or cult movie that has been underappreciated or just something that's on our DVD shelf. We do it with a lot of uh, high opinions, attitude. We all have different tastes. And we have guests, including Eric Zaldiver, who has worked for Tony Anthony and was friends with Tomas Milian and is still friends with Franco Nero. And uh, he gives us a lot of good insight about spaghetti westerns and Italian cinema. And we have other guests as well, uh, Gara Nagosian and some other other characters. Occasionally, we'll have a professional guest like Ron Hall, who was a stuntman, actor, martial artist uh, that you may have seen in some 90s films like Bloodsport 2. And uh, our guests will often give us good insight on the business and, and other things. And uh, we also sometimes dip into uh, true crime. We actually just released an episode that talks about a series of serial murders in San Francisco in the 1970s. And we had uh, our kind of crime mystery expert, John Quasar, on there. And it's a, it's a very fascinating listen. And uh, not, not for all taste. It's, uh, <laughs> it's pretty rough. Was that the Zodiac Killer? It's not the Zodiac Killer. This is a killer named the Doodler, who supposedly was a young black male artist and who would draw sketches of his victims who were typically gay men picked up at bars and he would stab them. But what John Quasar gets into is he may not have been the killer. And he, he this guy was maybe more an invention of a, a certain publicity-seeking San Francisco police officer who is uh, was well known to the public, and uh, it's it's a fascinating listen and uh, very very serious. It's uh, it's uh, a an interesting history lesson about a part of history that nobody really wants to talk about. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it's it's a hell of a listen, and we were also the first podcast to do an episode on. I guess he's now known as the Golden State Killer, but we were calling him Eron's East Area Rapist, original Night Stalker, and he was arrested a couple of years ago. Uh, Joseph D'Angelo and uh, that was a big that was the big true crime case of a couple of years ago that was real hip to follow but we were actually the first to do a podcast devoted to it that's great that's great yeah your show is so much fun and I highly recommend that the listeners check it out because um, like you said it's, it's just different every episode I love that 
yeah, yeah. We we don't like to follow a formula. Um, we try to keep it exciting. Uh, we are a little oddly offensive, and like I say, half the people probably tune in and get offended and don't listen again, and the other half <laughs> get completely addicted to it because you really gotta you gotta ride with it. You know, we we come from a different era where. You know, you didn't hold opinions back and such, you know, with a Don Rickles of movie podcast, I guess. Nice, nice. There's, there's no other better way to be. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's awesome. Okay, so we are continuing our yearly event called 13 Days of Hallotober. Our theme this year is modern zombie films. And what that means is that we're not going to cover zombie films from before 1968, like White Zombie, Teenage Zombies, any of those Bela Lugosi movies. No, we are covering the ones that came after and were inspired by George Romero's Night of the Living Dead in 1968. Night of the Living Dead not only set up the rules for modern zombies, it had a lasting effect on horror filmmaking for over the last 50 years. And today, we are going to cover the Chinese film Kung Fu Zombie from 1981. So class is officially in session. Your father's sleeping? That old faker, he's done this hard thing before. Now. Hey, we're still going? Of course, come on, you bet. There'll be time for fun when you're older. Father, you'll force me to go without your permission? What's that? You heard what I said. <laughs> You two go to town, find Prang, and bring him in here. Then we can spring our trap. <laughs> when those zombies jump on him and push him into that covered pit, the knives will do the rest. <laughs> right. I'll fix you! So, while I sleep, you're out. You fool. News came. News came. It could mean death to both of us. Ah! Oh, oh. What's wrong? Faith, I just thought of something. It's said that the Long Clan and Pan Fong's family have a blood feud. You kids. You don't understand. What's there to understand? Revenge. A clan named Long has sworn to destroy us. The Long Clan have a Kung Fu that can be kept up for three hours straight. Fight yourself. Who sent you? You'll never develop if you keep resting in your training. Your enemies won't stop in battle. You bastard. Your time has come, then your son. As police, it was our duty to stop you criminals. No matter. You must pay. Come fight. No threat, but it's clear that you've been training me to save your skin. Now I want my... I want my due. You disrespectful... I... I did all the fighting. To save his rotten skin. <laughs> now you have released the dark forces of evil. The living dead that are within my body. No one can kill me now. Ah! You'll face a kung fu you can't even imagine. You mean he could be half ghost and half human? 
We meet again. You fool. Now I've died once, you can't kill me again. The story revolves around Fang Fong, a.k.a. Pang, played by Billy Chong, a martial artist who's respected in town but can't get any respect from his father. Even after Fang foils a bank robbery and sends the bandit, the sideburned thug Lu Dai, to prison, Fang's father Fong, say that three times fast, continues to say that Fang is not good enough to inherit the estate. As if to prove his point, Fong randomly attacks Fang whenever he gets a chance. Fang usually fights his father until Fong has a heart attack and falls over. Fang's never quite sure whether or not Fong is actually dead because Fong likes to pretend to be dead so that he can attack Fang while the latter is celebrating his father's death. Meanwhile, Lu Dai is released from jail and comes back to town to seek revenge and enlists a Taoist priest slash wizard, Wu Lang, or Wu Lung in some cases, to aid him in disposing of Fang by creating a bunch of zombies that will do his bidding. Wu Lang creates the zombies, but they don't do much good. Lu Dai sets a trap, an empty grave that secretly houses a coffin lined with a bed of spikes, and the plan is to have the near-useless zombies push Fang into it. Lu attacks Fang, and the plan goes horribly wrong when Lu ends up falling into his own coffin trap and is himself killed. Now, why he needs zombies instead of henchmen is unclear, but I guess the name of the film's Kung Fu Zombie, so when in Rome... Lu Dai's body may be dead, but his spirit remains, haunting Wu Lang and demanding a new body, all the while messing with him in a way that only ghosts can. So the wizard and the thugs start to scour the mortuaries for bodies. They find a great specimen, but it actually is a deadly serial killer named Quan Wei Luang, whom they mistook for a dead body because he's killed so many people that he's devoid of a soul. Luang is an old enemy of Fang's family, and soon he tries to kill him in a battle that Fang has trained all of his life for. Ultimately, <laughs> Fang is victorious, killing Luang. Of course, Fang's dad takes most of the reward money. The wizard tries to put Lu Dai's spirit into Luang's body, but Luang is so evil, and Wu Lang is such an incompetent sorcerer, that the spell backfires, and Luang is reborn as a vampire who madly roams the countryside, feasting on the locals, preparing to get revenge on Fang. Now, I'm sure you've noticed this, John, but whenever Luang appears, the first few notes of the James Bond theme plays. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a very, uh, the, the typical hodgepodge soundtrack that yes. you get from uh, Chinese or Hong Kong cinema, right, specifically. Right. So in the meantime, Lu Dai still needs a body. Fortunately, Fong has died for real. Or is it really fortunate? Lu wants to take the ultimate revenge on Fang by killing him using the hands of his own father. But the ceremony is interrupted, and the thug and Pang's... And and the thug and Fang's father share control of the body. Fang must now defeat both the deadly vampire and his father's possessed corpse. So, John, you suggested this film. When did you first see it, and what was your impression, your first impression? I uh, first rented, I think, the Ocean Shores video cassette on an old, old format known as VHS Kids um, <laughs> back in the 1980s. Uh, when it was a big, nice Ocean Shores 
uh, clamshell box, and um, it did not play on television as far as I know, although it did get a U.S. release. But I saw it then, and I actually found it very hyperkinetic and uh, a little baffling and muddled. You know, I hadn't seen a lot of the Hong Kong horror stuff at the time, like Mr. Vampire and Encounters of the Spooky Kind, and I think it was uh, it's said to be greatly inspired by Encounters of the Spooky Kind. Um, but it, it was uh, it was quite something because I was into watching all of Billy Chong's films. He was this uh, kind of short-lived sensation in Hong Kong cinema in uh, the late 70s, early 80s, um, providing, starring in movies that I think were easy to export to third world markets and America and, and such because they were more in the, the kind of simplistic uh, Bruce Lee vein where there was a lot of action and simple stories and he even made a movie in arizona we'll talk about later uh but um it was uh it was unique because it was the most chinese of the billy chong films i'd seen and by that i mean a lot of it's tied in with chinese supernatural elements and comedy the chinese comedy and uh the storytelling which can be a little confusing um which in hong kong they have no problem with this because if you've been there and i have not but i've been told by everybody who has it is a very uh, what would be the term multitasking society where they're on their cell phone while they're watching something and writing something <laughs> and working their job. You know, they're doing every, that's just the way they live their lives. And it's very fast paced and, you know, at least back then. And um, I, I uh, it's always been a mystery to me because I'll watch it and not really, I'll be like, what was that? And then I'll, <laughs> I'll revisit it every few years because I would get, you know, bootleg copies of it uh, I don't think there was ever a legit copy released after the Ocean Shores video uh, or watch it on YouTube or the Ground Zero DVD which was a bootleg and I would just be like I don't know what the hell I just watched <laughs> and I watch this stuff all the time and can usually figure it out and um, even um, watching it again last night uh, revisiting it I was still a little like wow this thing is fast you know so yeah. Um, but yeah that's when I, I first saw it and I've, I've seen it several times uh, over the decades and, and still enjoy revisiting it. But, uh, but man, I still am not quite sure what I've seen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I actually hadn't heard of this. Um, I just watched it the other day on your recommendation and I have to say, I, I walked in not expecting a comedy, but I yeah. just thought it was fun and hilarious. You know, the, yeah. now the version I watched was really low quality, but I felt like that added to the charm because it, it, like you said, you know, the, in the VHS days, and it reminded me of even the older days where you'd catch these pictures on a UHF station. Um, right. And, you know, by the end of the movie, I felt like some of the elements were very familiar to me. So it, it's possible I did catch it on TV when I was a kid. I just don't recall. Right. And I'm not aware of it playing on television and syndication. It may have. It did not play in the Black Belt Theater uh, packages. It played on my local UHF. I did one time in 1996 catch the movie on a spanish tv station oh wow espanol and i watched it and <laughs> it made about as much sense as it does dubbed in english <laughs> dubbed in Spanish. i speak very little spanish so it was uh quite an experience but the print quality was about the same that same kind of muddy transfer a little washed out i would love to see this uh remastered one day but unfortunately it's part of the eternal films uh, studio that was short-lived in the late 70s, early 80s, and uh, a lot of their stuff, not, nothing of theirs has been remastered. Like, um, except for the the Blu-ray release, a recent Blu-ray release of Dynamo, the uh, Bruce Lai, Ho Chuck Dao film, 
which was taken from a 35 millimeter. But my understanding is the rights to the Eternal Films Library is very expensive for any uh, company, boutique Blu-ray company that wants to try. But maybe they'll lower the price. But man, I, I would love to see it remastered. I think it might give us a whole new appreciation of it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, although I have to say, too, now I'm looking forward to watching it again uh, at some point, And I want to watch it late at night. Because yeah, this is yeah, definitely is. the late night kind of movie. It is a pizza and beer um, or diet soda, depending on your on your, <laughs> your poison. Or but vodka. it's very much a pizza and beer movie for Friday nights. Yeah, you know, absolutely. So let's dive into the, the crew and the cast here. Uh, it was directed by... Now, this I found this interesting. I'm sure you can clear this up. So the director had multiple names. On right. IMDb, he's listed as Sean Hua. Right. On the Hong Kong movie database, it's the reverse. It's Hua Sean. Yeah. Um, a City on Fire lists him as Wyatt Wang. Yeah. Um, Wikipedia and TalkingPulp.com call him Hua Yi Hung. And Letterboxd.com calls him Yi Jung Hua. Right. So <laughs> I know these, these Chinese actors and directors and writers and stuff have multiple names, so I'm sure. Uh, would you say that that's, you know, uh, where this comes from? Depends on whether it's Cantonese, Mandarin, and how much it's been screwed up by translation. Even by the studio, they often will uh, put out the names wrong. But uh, it's Washan, who I always call him Washan, because he is the director of Inframan, the first uh, Hong Kong film I ever saw. And he was a very inventive, uh, clearly very talented, creative director at Shaw Brothers. And he did crime films. He did... uh, Inframan, which is probably the most famous Shaw Brothers film around yeah. the world, I think. Until lately, I guess you could say 36 Chamber of Shaolin, but I would still say it's Inframan. And uh, he uh, he later worked in the Indies, and he was the main director for Eternal Films. He directed Dynamo, which, is, I, as far as I'm concerned, is one of Bruce, Bruce Lai's better films, or Ho Chung Dao. Um, he directed most of the Billy Chong films, uh, always did an exceptional job. Now, the interesting thing about Inframan is it was the first Hong Kong film to be storyboarded because they were using all these special effects and monster suits and oh, okay. uh, complex, you know, a lot of that is on-camera effects work. And uh, so they, uh, it was very carefully storyboarded, the first film in Hong Kong history to be storyboarded. And I wonder, looking at this film and the way it seems to almost look like a comic book brought to life, the way it's cut, it every every scene looks like a comic book panel. Yeah. I wonder if this was storyboarded. Oh, maybe, yeah. I wish somebody would interview Washon, and you know, I, I believe he's still alive and in retirement. But um, I actually think this may have been storyboarded. Like maybe he kept that tradition because his stuff always has a very unique and uh, and good visual look, and it, it does have me wonder. But I, of course, I have no insight on what right. was really going on. But uh, but yeah, it's, you'll notice it's like with the cutting and everything, it really looks like comic book panels brought to life and i've noticed that also in chewy hark's early work where which i think kind of hurts some of his stuff where it looks like you know he had it perfectly set up and staged and then cuts it like it's a comic book panel that you're flipping through with his scenes and that's probably why he was very popular in the festival circuit in the early days but with wash on i I think he was the first to do that things that style right right yeah it's definitely um you could tell watching this movie and uh wash on also wrote this movie too yeah. And let's get into the cast here. So, of course, we've got Billy Chong, who um, he I've seen his character listed as Fong Fang or uh, uh, Pang. And uh, it's probably pronounced the same way in Chinese, I would imagine, right? Pang is like right. the P is an F. 
Yeah, yeah. I okay. think so. Now, he's the first Indonesian star that made a significant impact on the kung fu cinema scene. Um, he worked very hard for over a period of around five years from the late 70s to the early 80s before returning to his native Indonesia and became a local TV star in his homeland. Um, I, apparently, he now goes by the name of Willie Dozan. I think he's also still alive. Yeah, he's um, he's always been Willie Dozan, and Billy Chong was chosen as his export name for the, the Hong Kong movies. Oh, okay. Um, and but Willie Dozan is his Indonesian name, and of course they pick a stage name because you can't call yourself Willie Dozan in Hong Kong cinema. I don't think they wanted to give away that he was Indonesian or didn't want to emphasize it, uh, because as you know, Hong Kong audiences can be a little ethnocentric about that, because on East meets West, we talked about how the Venom guys weren't really that popular in Hong Kong, possibly because they were Taiwanese. Right. Most of them were Taiwanese. And um, he, they, it seems like they recruited him. He has a mysterious career because he's in some Indonesian action films that were co-productions with Hong Kong producers. And I, th uh, I think one of the films had Ching Kwan Tai, I think it was called Black Belt Karate or something. It has a very generic title. And he has a bit part in that. And he's pretty memorable because he uh, he's very good looking on camera. Like you'll notice him. He's more handsome than the other actors. And I think they were like, hey, we need to make that guy a star. And he was supposedly, I believe, a Taekwondo and Gojuru or Kyoshikan karate guy. And you can teach those dudes to fight, you know, Kung Fu style in Hong Kong cinema pretty easily. I think he was very athletic and uh, they recruited him for hong kong films and signed him to the eternal film corporation i think with the idea of making him sort of a he's sort of a combo of bruce lee and jackie chan in that he could be funny and somewhat acrobatic like jackie chan and he can also be serious and kick great like bruce lee i actually think he's a better kicker than bruce or jackie <laughs> and and he and he has that athleticism doesn't have to be doubled too much except maybe for some acrobatics and um an interesting uh aspect i found out only recently he spent some time at Kim Kahana's stuntman school in uh, Hollywood. Oh, wow. Yeah, and there's the YouTube video out there of him uh, learning horse riding uh, stunt work and such at Kim Kahana's school. And a friend of mine interviewed Kim Kahana just a few months ago in Florida. Who is in, he's in retirement. He's, yep. like, you know, he's in his 90s. And he asked him about Billy Chong and, and showed him a photo and said, you know, Willie Dozan, Billy Chong. And Kim remembered him being at the school, but did not remember his name and did not remember why he was there. So I'm actually curious and wondering if maybe there was a thought of Eternal Films possibly trying to make him a star in America. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's funny. On, as a side note here, um, we're going to have Kim Kahana on the show in uh, probably about a month. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I just I, um, I had him booked, and then I didn't realize that he had a, he had a book out about his life. So, yeah, yeah, I just got a copy recently. Yeah, I just got mine, too, like a couple of days ago, and so it's like i got to read that first and then um, talk to him. But, yeah, that's that's going to be awesome. Um, hey, maybe you could join us on that episode. That would be yeah, fun. Yeah, possibly. He's the uh, real-life man of action from what I've yeah. read in the book so far. It, really, really stunning stuff. And to me, he'll always be uh, Chongo from uh, Danger Island. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, first heard about him on an episode. Do you remember this show that used to be on Nickelodeon on the weekends hosted by Leonard Nimoy, Lights, Camera, Action? Yes. Yeah, and there was an episode where Leonard Nimoy was at Kim Kahana's stunt ranch oh, at wow. a school, and I, I think Kahana was showing him tricks or something. I'm pretty sure it was that. It was either that or it was a Robert Osborne-hosted uh, cable TV bumper on the Spotlight channel, but I, I think it was Lights, Camera, Action. Kim Kahana was showing off stunt work and everything, and I was fascinated by it because, uh, you know, I didn't 
didn't know much about that stuff other than what you see on the fall guy. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> and it's interesting, too. Now, Billy Chung, or, uh, you know, uh, Willie Dozan, he was a um, pop idol in Indonesia first, right? Yeah. I, I'm not sure. Um, his, like I said, things are a little cloudy, but when he returned from Hong Kong uh, after his movie A Fistful of Talons bombed in the uh, market, which is surprising because it's a really good film. I can understand his uh, heartbreak over that. But he, uh, when he returned to Indonesia, I think he married like a, a beauty queen uh, who'd been like a Miss Indonesia or Miss Jakarta. And he, um, he became like a TV star and he was still starring in movies. And um, there was an attempt to bring him back to Hong Kong uh, first, they brought him in for Aces Go Places 5, a Cinema City production. And uh, he had disagreements with the director, Lau Karlong, uh, or Leo Jialiang from the old Shaw Brothers studio, right. about the fight scene. So he's only in the movie for about three minutes. And he has basically a cameo fighting with Sam Hui, and he gets knocked into a box. And apparently, there was at the time, um, I guess he went back to Indonesia, did more movies and TV. It's like I said, it's very murky. You can find some of those Indonesian movies on YouTube, by the way. You have oh, to cool. look under Willie Dozan uh, movie, whatever, and you can find some of those Indonesian martial arts films. They're not as slick as the Hong Kong productions. The, right, right. Uh, the production quality was not quite as good or competent. But um, well, he went back to Indonesia, and then Jet Li quit the very popular Once Upon a Time in China series playing Wong Fei Hung after the third film because of disagreements with Chewy Hart. And there was a very aggressive attempt by Chewy Hart and Golden Harvest to have Billy Chong bring him back to Hong Kong to star as Wong Fei Hung and replace Jet Li. Huh. And he turned it down. He totally rejected it. When I heard that story, I said, he must be a rich kid and money doesn't matter to him. And I talked to a uh, Hong Kong a, a friend of mine on Facebook who works as a Hong Kong casting agent, sometime producer, and I mentioned that to him. He goes, "It's true. He's from a rich background. He doesn't care about money. You know, he's very wow. content living in Indonesia. And stardom didn't mean a lot to him in Hong Kong. And he goes, I have tried to bring him in on several movie projects and TV projects." Uh, you know, to kind of give him a, a comeback because I think he's still got something to offer audiences and everything, and he doesn't care. You know, he's huh. very frustrating to deal with and just doesn't really care. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, he'll act interested, and then he's like, ah, you know what? I don't really want to do this. <laughs> I gotta, I gotta, I gotta work. You know, it's right. like I can just make my cheap, I can make my cheap TV movies on for Indonesian television, and I got plenty of money. And I think he remarried recently, and. um because he has an Instagram. He has, uh, if you look under Willie Dozan, you will find his Instagram page. It's fascinating because there's shots of him and his kid. His kid looks just like him. Um, he's wearing his uh, karate gi, and he doesn't look any older than he looked wow. 30 years ago. He's not aged that much. It's really <laughs> stunning, and he's you know got the smile and everything. He looks about the same, just a little bit of gray hair, maybe a l few extra pounds, but he looks sharp and. Um, you know, he, he seems happy, So, uh, but I follow Willie Dozan on Instagram, and it's uh, it's definitely worth uh, worth following if you want to see what's, what Billy Chog's been up to all these years. That's great. Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna have to look him up on that. I wonder if he does interviews. Possibly. He speaks very good English because there is an English interview with him on YouTube. I believe it was Toby Russell, uh, Ken Russell's son, was interviewing him, and um, he, he filled in a lot of blanks. Like, uh, it, it, he was very honest with the interview and everything, and... Uh, English was excellent, and uh, he could, you know, probably fill you in. Who knows? 
Yeah, you know? yeah, definitely. Now, can you tell us about this uh, movie he made in Arizona that you mentioned at the beginning? Okay, that's A Hard Way to Die. It's also known as Sun Dragon. Uh, it was filmed on location, I believe, in Mesa, Arizona. I just don't look it up. But uh, it also features Carl Scott, the uh, young black martial artist, who was very impressive in his youth uh, doing these films. He got his, I think he made his film debut in Soul Brothers of Kung Fu or <laughs> Kung Fu Avengers, a Bruce Fly film. Uh, Bruce Lai and I believe Lo Mang. And uh, Carl, Carl broke into the business very young. Um, let me see. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look up A Hard Way to Die real quick on IMDb so I don't miss any beats here. Let's see. Sure. Hard Way to Die. Sun Dragon is listed 1979. It was filmed on location. Uh, also features the kickboxing champ Louis Neglia, who was a uh, very, very tough dude out of New York. And um, what's interesting about that production is Louis Neglia does very well with the Hong Kong style choreography. And I think that might have been his point fighting experience in karate. And uh, Carl Scott looks great. Um, Billy Chong is fantastic in it. The, uh, the Arizona locations give it a completely different vibe. Only one problem. The dubbing is the worst dubbing ever done on a kung fu film ever made. <laughs> because, and, and by the way, the director was Wash On. And uh, the action's terrific. But the dubbing, I believe, was done in New Jersey by amateurs. Because I have never heard these voices again. I seriously think they just pulled people out of radio, local radio stations and have them dub the film because the dubbing is excruciating. It wasn't done in Hong Kong. I think it was done in New Jersey. Uh, the company, Eternal Films, had an American office in New Jersey called, I think it was called Transamerica, and that handled their American distribution stateside. And I think they also assembled the dub there. It didn't want to pay Ted Thomas and Chris Hilton to dub it for whatever reason. And uh, it's, uh, it's a bad, bad dub, but the action is fantastic. It is really cool stuff. And this may have been when Billy was at Kim Kahana's school. I don't know. Interesting. Well, I'll definitely have to check that out. So is A Hard Way to Die, also known as Sun Dragon? I think it's Sun yeah, Dragon. Yeah, you can find it, it on up. YouTube. You can yeah. find it on YouTube and Tubi TV and all. Yeah, Tubi TV has it. And it's uh, it's worth checking out. Just be warned the tubbing is going to be, um, I don't know, uh, sing some uh, Led Zeppelin to yourself or something. Dialogue's <laughs> going on. Wait around for the action, I suppose. That's funny. So then we've got uh, Chiang Tao, who plays uh, his father, Fong, who mm -hmm. is in over 216 films. And, uh, He's some all of the... over the place, man. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, some of his highlights are The Blind Swordsman's Revenge, Nacha the Great, Challenge of the Masters, Lady Exterminator. I mean, wh which ones of his films kind of stick out to you? Um, it's funny because I recently uh, watched The Outlaw Brothers or rewatched The Outlaw Brothers, the Frankie Chan film from like 1990, I believe with Frankie Chan and Yukari Yoshima, and he's got a, a role in there as a criminal who, uh, you know, it's a comedic and villain role that's really fun. And I'm like, man, this guy was still making movies in the 90s. And that just stands out because he, he's got a very distinctive look. Right. So you just, you spot him right away. You recognize him right away. He's one of the first of the early Hong Kong actors I could just pick up on right away. And um, I, I think my favorite is probably Five Shaolin Masters, where he's one of the rivals to the Five Shaolin Masters. This also played on TV as Five Masters of Death for the old school Black Belt Theater fans. That's a Shaw Brothers production. Uh, really the first film to do shapes, as uh, the fans like to call them, which is like animal styles. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's, uh, it was David Chang, T. Lung, Chi Quan Chun, uh, Fu Xing, uh, kind of an all-star cast. And uh, Lao Karlung or Leo Jialiang is probably the real director of it, and it's excellent. Like The action is very, very grounded. It's kung fu, animal styles, but... 
I'll put it this way. You watch a Bruce Lee movie and he's a one man army and, he, you know, you just walk through. He hits everybody in a five mile radius. <laughs> Nobody ever gets a shot on him or whatever. And in this movie, the five masters who are fleeing a burnt Shaolin temple um, are learning. Each is learning a distinctive fighting style to fight one rival. They're oh, wow. not supermen. They're just trying to fight that one guy who's dangerous. And nice. uh, that's what's cool about the film. It keeps it realistic, you know, so. So anybody who says, oh, these movies are all live action cartoons and they're not realistic. This is probably one of the more realistic, you know, historic Shaolin films. Wow. That's cool. And I love it. I, I've seen it numerous times, probably more than any other Hong Kong movie. What's the title again? Five Shaolin Masters is the current okay. title. Yeah, and, it, and if you saw it on TV back in the day, it was Five Masters of Death. I probably did. I probably did. Yeah. I, I used to watch it late night. We had a... Um, a late night kung fu show. I think it was a host, and of course he was the stereotypical Chinese guy. And there was the film I'll never forget because I watched it with my dad. The film was called Dynasty, and they yeah. come back from the commercial, and he goes, "Now back to Dynasty. No, no, Bray Carrington. No." Yeah, <laughs> that was the uh, the 3D kung fu film that everybody is uh, was obsessed over for years, and I think it finally came out on Blu-ray. Right, uh, Ken Lorber issued the the uh, 3D edition. Oh, I'm going to have to check that out, because I, I remember, the only thing I really remember from that was the training sequence where the, the guys would have to hold a bucket of water in each hand, hold their arms outright on each side yeah. of them, with a knife strapped to their bicep, so that if they lowered their arms, the knife would hit them so, in the side. Now, that's in Dynasty, because that's also in 36 Chamber of Shaolin, oh, or mm. Master Killer. Maybe I'm getting them confused, and I thought that was from Dynasty, but... It may be in there, because um, it was pretty pretty known or obvious that they were when other cheaper films would steal from a Shaw Brothers film like uh, 36 Chamber of Shaolin or you know Master Killer there's no copyright on ideas in Hong Kong so they would steal each other's gimmicks all the time after Jackie Chan hit it big with um, Snake in the Eagle Shadow and Drunken right. Master man the amount of drunken kung fu uh, lousy student learning from an old master in the woods kung fu comedies was like you know, it was an infestation <laughs> of that industry. There were so many of those films, and uh, some of them were, were just as popular as Snake and the Eagle Shadow. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty astonishing. Of Cooks and Kung Fu, and <laughs> World of the Drunken Master, and Mystery of Chess Boxing, and uh, just so many of them. It, it, it's hilarious that there's no originality when something is trendy. You know? Well, and that reminds me, too. Wasn't in Snakes of the Snakes and the Eagle Shadow... They used a clip of music from Star Wars when Luke shoots the, um, the, the whatever, the photons or the torpedoes down into the shaft of the Death Star. It's that, yeah. the, the drum going, dun, 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 dun. And I think they use that in Snakes in the Eagle Shadow. There, it's funny about that film. And uh, there are two different soundtrack versions. They, like, there's, both are, have English dubs and Cantonese dubs, but apparently different... English, uh, a uh, it's not different English dubbing, but the music is different on certain version or a, a different version. And um, like, okay, you have uh, that song "Magic Fly" by Space as the theme music, yeah. uh, like a French synthesizer band, a craftwork type of thing. And um, you also have "Oxygen" from what's his name, Jean Michael Jarre, the oh, yeah. French composer. Yeah, that's in both versions. However, the second alternate soundtrack version has a re-recording of Magic Fly, and I don't think it's by space because it's heavier, bassier, and faster. And that was like 
it was a point of obsession with me and Seven Hooks with we would talk about that movie because we both love it. Um, but we were curious why there was an alternate soundtrack. And I've I've asked a friend of mine who speaks to uh, Seraphim Caralexis, who was the American distributor of Snake and the Eagle Shadow, why there was an alternate soundtrack version, if he knew anything about it. But I have not heard back uh, any confirmation of why that was, why there's this different music score. And you would think, oh, well, it's because they were stealing the music and they had to do their own score. But no, this other version has more stolen music. It has like <laughs> stuff stolen from the Carrie soundtrack. Pino Dinaggio, I think it was Pino Dinaggio who did that. Wow. It, it, it's got it's got like it's got other stolen music. So it's like, okay, why why <laughs> does this have an alternate soundtrack? So and my understanding is 88 films, when they uh, put out the Blu-ray earlier this year, they looked into getting that alternate soundtrack with the re-recording of Magic Fly and and I guess the stolen music from Carrie. They couldn't get it. There was a rights issue about it. They couldn't get that version. But now this is what's funny. I'm so obsessed with that film that I bought the German Blu-ray, which has both both of those versions. It has the English dub and the uh, and the English dub with that alternate soundtrack. And oh, wow. So that to me, the German Blu-ray was the version to get, even though it doesn't have any bonus stuff like you know commentaries or interviews or anything like right. that. But I like I had to have because that alternate soundtrack version is what i remembered in the theater in 1982 uh when i saw it when i was a little kid so that's the version i wanted interesting yeah i, I have it on vhs i think that's where i first saw it yeah and i couldn't tell you which version you have because both both versions you know flooded the market so <laughs> in, in different bootleg releases legit releases and and i do know the first original world video release was that alternate soundtrack that i saw in theaters Interesting, interesting. So moving on here, the um, the Taoist priest was played by Chan Lao. Um, right. Sometimes they, the character is called Wu Lung or Wu Lang, or Hong Kong Movie Database calls him Mao Shan. Right. And um, I just was looking at his title at the, the movies he was in. I, the, some of the funniest ones were Superman Against the Orient and Little <laughs> Superman. Yeah. <laughs> Superman Against the Orient, I believe, is, uh, I believe it's an Italian production, actually. Oh wow! Oh, yeah, yeah, it's Italian production with um, that was sort of does a co-production with Shaw. He uh, he has an interesting career. He's another one of those character actors you've seen him in a hundred a hundred times in a hundred different films and uh, had a hell of a career. Um, I think the role I am most familiar with him in, other than the Bruce Lee Hojuk Dao movie Blind Fist of Bruce, where he's one of the bully villains. Um, <laughs> he <laughs> he's. Um, uh, I think he's uh, dubbed by Warren Rook in that film, and he usually is when that team dubs him. But huh. um, my favorite is probably The Dragon the Hero, where he's actually kind of the main villain. Uh, and, and it's a film with John Liu, who was the terrific leg fighter who could do almost anything with his feet, and uh, Dragon Lee, the uh, Korean Bruce Lee clone. But it's, it's a hell of a film, and apparently ran on 42nd Street for like a year or something. But there's... That's one you may want to cover in the future if you want to do just a really weird, oddball kung fu film that is endlessly rewatchable, like a lot of the Billy Chong films. It's, what was uh, the it's title again? Something. The Dragon, the Hero. Dragon, the Hero. Oh, yeah. I'll definitely have to check that out. That was a big favorite on 42nd Street, and for good reason. It is a, it is a blast. But, yeah, he, this guy was, uh, you know, had a hell of a career. Oh, yeah. He, he was hilarious here. Yeah, uh, he's he's brilliant, brilliant comedic comedic actor. We don't give these guys enough credit, and I sometimes wonder if American viewers think all these films are supposed to be serious, right? And and they're not. It's like they're like Burt Reynolds films or whatever. They're action comedies, right? Right. <laughs> 
Hi, this is Rigor, host of Then Is Now podcast and The East Meets the West. I just wanted to say thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers. We appreciate your support as we grow the audience for our shows. You can find our links to our Patreon page as well as our Tee Public page at havenpodcasts.com. With Patreon, you'll get a lot of exclusive stuff, including our monthly pop culture newsletter, cool gifts, discounts for Tee Public, and our special exclusive show, Then Is Now Filmmakers series, in which we interview directors, producers, writers, composers, special effects guys, basically anybody who works behind the scenes in film and television, and get their insights into the process of creating films and TV shows. Also at our Tee Public page, you'll find cool merch that you can get or even give to others as gifts. You can find those links at our website, or you can go directly to tpublic.com slash stores slash havenpodcasts and patreon.com slash thenisnowpodcast. Enjoy! Are you a lifelong fan of General Hospital? Are you a new fan who wants to know more about the history of the show? Do you enjoy talking about the show with others? Do you find yourself yelling at the TV? Is your self-care an hour a day in Port Charles? If so, we invite you to join hosts Amanda Kimmel and Shannon Coach at the place where all the hidden conversations take place and secrets are revealed. Meet us at Pier 54, a General Hospital fan podcast. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Monster Kid Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Monster Kid Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Monster Kid Radio. Shark Bites, Shark Bites Podcast, it's the greatest show in history. From the Dorkening Network, hosted by a nerd who's named Patsy. From movie reviews to tips on surviving the coronavirus, Shark Bites has it all. Follow us on Facebook and suggest topics at sharkbitespod at gmail.com. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Now we've got uh, Chen Kai Ying, who played Lu Dai, the uh, the sideburned villain, as I mentioned. Um, yeah. Not to be confused with Chen Kang Ye, who played Fang's servant. <laughs> uh, yeah, let's, let's not get, boy, these guys really need more anglicized export names. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, then we've got Quan Young Moon, who played uh, Quan Wei Long, which was who was the cold blooded killer, the one who came back as a vampire. Now I'm sure you could tell us about him. He was in Return to the Thirty Six Chamber, right? And, Right. He is a Korean uh, Taekwondo uh, black belt. Yeah. And he has a very fascinating career because he's one of these guys that because he was always a supporting role or villain. Uh, people don't know much about him, but uh, he 
he did Shaw Brothers films. He did Golden Harvest movies. He fought with Jackie Chan and Project A. Um, he's a terrific leg fighter. He's Taekwondo. Yeah. But he came to America and for a short time was Sylvester Stallone's Taekwondo instructor. Oh, wow. If you watch Rambo 3, you'll notice uh, Stallone is doing some really good kicks, like Taekwondo kicks. And apparently it was because he was training with Young Mun Kwon and uh, was who was teaching him this stuff so he could learn to have Rambo have a little unique fighting style for the movie. And um, he also, I believe, was the choreographer on that, uh, what's that goofy movie that the Alamo Drafthouse kind of rediscovered? And, uh, Miami Connection. Yeah, oh, he's yes. the choreographer on that. Wow. So he's, he's had a pretty diverse career. It's a it's a little, little unique. He'd, he'd be a good guy to interview. I wonder if he's still around. And, yeah. Um, yeah, he, he'd be a hell of an interview if anybody could find him. I'll have to look that up. He's He's been referred to as the Mad Korean. <laughs> well, he has a great villain face. Like, he's yeah. got it in every film. You can always spot it. But, yeah, he's in – yeah, I'm looking at his, his uh, list titles. He was in Shallot Plot, which is one of my favorite underrated uh, Golden Harvest productions of the 70s where they were trying to do cheap knockoffs of the of the Shaw Brothers Shaolin films and stuff. It's a really good film. Huh. Um, yeah, a, a hell of a career. Interesting, yeah. Definitely got to look into him more. And then we've got Pak Shalik, who played... He was the guy that shaved his head. And what I want to know is, after he shaved his head, why did he have a piece of paper stuck to it? Okay, that is something in the Taoist uh, mysticism and superstition. Uh, if you watch movies like Mr. Vampire, they control the hopping vampires with a talisman that is placed on the forehead. And supposedly this has a spell that freezes them. Now I need to read more up on it because I haven't really followed this stuff in a long time and I, I recently got a pretty good book um, it's like Tales from a Chinese gift shop or something and it has all the Chinese ghost stories and superstitions explained and I guess that's where a lot of this comes from And uh, but it's like a talisman that like freezes them kind of like how we have the crucifix will ward off a vampire um, or right, garlic right. will do such or you can control them with garlic or running water or whatever the stuff the hammer films do it's like uh, that's that's sort of their uh, their cultural tradition. Oh, interesting, interesting. And then um, last up, we've got a guy named Shum Yan Chi, who played um, Malo San. And I don't know if you know anything about him. I couldn't really find too much on him. No, and um, a lot of these guys I don't, you know, because I I'll see familiar faces, and uh, but not really. I was like, okay, I know I've seen him in something, because I you know I don't watch this stuff exclusively. And uh, but if I probably devoted more time, I would be pinpointing the, <laughs> you know, pinpointing the careers. Go okay, this guy's from here, and this guy's from that. You know, um, it was mind blowing enough because in the last few years, I only had recently found out Wa Shan directed all these Billy Chong movies, the director of Inframan, my favorite superhero film. So right. was, that tripped me out enough, and I'm like, man, this this uh, industry is not as wide. You know, in Hong Kong, we we tend to think like Hollywood. Oh, you got all these competing studios, and you got all these stuntmen, all these actors, and all this talent, and all these directors. But in in Hong Kong, a friend pointed out to me who's been there. He said, "You know, the Shaw Brothers Studio is a thirty-minute bus ride from Golden Harvest." Huh, so I was like, "So in the seventies and eighties, it is not beyond shadow of a doubt that these stunt crews would go work on one movie." 
in the mornings at Shaw Brothers Studio and then take a quick bus ride over to Golden <laughs> Harvest or just take a drive over to Golden Harvest and commute there that day. Okay, we're going to work on this Samo movie. Okay, now we're going to go work on this, uh, this Shaw Brothers film, you know, this Shaw Brothers production. Oh, they need guys to, you know, jump off a trampoline in front of an explosion. You know, it's just That's like, hilarious. And because they're filming without sound, dialogue doesn't matter. So you only have to do one take of dialogue. Right. So they, they could probably, the action stuff, they could devote more time to and do it more takes. But it's a, a much smaller industry than, you know, when I was a kid watching these things, I assumed it must have been vast. And they were filming all over the place. But no, it's actually, um, you know, it's a, it was very much a blue collar, hey, day of work. You know, right. when, uh, when we would ask, when I met Sammo Hung, uh, me and my friends, we, but asking about these movies, he couldn't remember anything because it was just a day at the office. Right. <laughs> you know, he's made all these films and he didn't have much memory of making it. He goes like, because I kind of remember working on this. I don't, no, I don't remember because it was just a, another day at work. Right. You know, they were, right. they would work on three or four films at the same time. And uh, it, it was kind of a rotation. And, you know, to them, it was just work. To us, it's like these films really hit us on a different level. And it's uh, <laughs> because we're, we're using that Hollywood standard. Oh, Star Wars was a significant movie or The Exorcist was a significant movie. It's like, but over there, it's just a day at work, you know. Right, right, exactly. Now, I read that this movie was influenced by a film called Encounters of the Spooky Kind, which was directed by Samuel Hung. But right. um, this one's a much more faster pace uh, film than that one. Yeah, and... Um... It's funny because Encounters with Spooky Kind was a very significant production because Samo had basically fused the uh, Chinese folklore and superstition with um, that that Hong Kong hyperkinetic filmmaking that was coming in vogue at the time with the fast cutting and the action, right, the real right. shocking jaw dropping stunt work. And when he was working on Encounters with Spooky Kind, they was there was actually an offer sent out to Christopher Lee to play Dracula in the film. Oh wow. Yeah, but of course they didn't get him because they didn't want to. You know, Christopher Lee was like, at the time, was one of the highest paid actors in the world, and there was no way they were gonna <laughs> they were gonna cough up the, you know, whatever he was asking for, half a million to just play Dracula for ten minutes, which was a role he didn't like playing unless he got paid big time for it. Right. So, um, yeah, there was an offer sent to Christopher Lee, but um, apparently it was turned down or never acknowledged. But uh, that's a, it's an enjoyable movie, but. Uh, this film is way faster paced. It's kind of that example of the even cheaper production kind of outdoing the original film, the influential film in pacing and uh, just high energy editing and everything. It's And Samo was already on the cusp of that type of, um, I guess I would compare the editing to the early Bond films. Whenever Bond would get into a fight, it's slightly sped up and it's cut very quickly. Yeah. Yeah, like when you see Sean Connery suddenly he's fighting with Robert Shaw and it's just crazy or the beginning of Thunderball or whatever where they're right. you know, the action is just very fast and um it's it's like Samo was working off of that model of editing and uh Wash on over at Eternal Films was just he ramped it up to yeah. <laughs> to an even higher <laughs> level because this is a very fast paced film. Now IMDB mentions in its other alternate versions that there is a Japanese video version. Uh, apparently Cantonese language that is 20 minutes longer. I heard about that. Yeah, I read that about that. Yeah, and that fascinates me because that might explain some stuff of the film I couldn't really figure out. Like, it's, because it's too, the movie is very choppy, and that's a pro, the only problem I have with it. It's very choppy with the storytelling, and I'm wondering if that 25 minutes fills in 
the plot a bit and maybe there's a bit more character development. <laughs> well, like... yeah. There's that scene where um, the, a bunch of the characters are talking and then it cuts to Billy Chong fighting the dude with the afro. Yeah, and then yeah. cuts back and it, it had nothing to do with the story. <laughs> now, I didn't, I didn't have time to check this, but I just noticed it last night. There was a scene where he's fighting two guys in an alley. I swear that scene is also in uh, Crystal Fist. Oh. His, uh, his Snake and the Eagle Shadow knockoff, which utilized talent of <laughs> Yin Wu Ping and the Yun Clan. <laughs> so they came in and worked on their, their own ripoff. That's of funny. Their, their hit film. But I swear that looked like stock footage, and like it was the same stuff or maybe a different edit of the same footage. And it's not beyond the pale for them to use stock footage of different, you know, from uh, different action scenes from different movies to kind of fill up the action quotient. But, right. Um, and don't don't take it as the gospel. I'm not sure. It just looked extremely familiar. I'm like, wait a minute, is this scene in Superpower? Is this in Crystal Fist? You know, it's just kind of like this is very familiar. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, you know, like you said, I I loved the frenetic pacing of this film. It was very Sam Raimi. Um, the editing, yeah. I thought, was very well done. And I, I wonder if Sam Raimi was influenced by these kind of films. I often wonder because there are times when I will watch films like this. And I will think, well, Sam Raimi influenced by Hong Kong movies, and he might have seen it at a Michigan drive-in. And um, that he was almost a that he was a producer on Hard Target, the John Woo's American debut, and was actually held in reserve in case he had to take over filming if John Woo couldn't handle it. Huh. It it does have me wondering, and but you know, I'll see movies like the Tony Anthony Western Get Me, where he's his stranger. Uh, character falls into a time warp basically and wonder did that influence army of darkness i just it's oh, yeah. there's some similarities there because his character is like pretty much tortured throughout the whole film <laughs> <laughs> with all this all these going on and uh, then at the end he gets out a shotgun and basically starts kicking ass and you know getting mean and uh writes the wrongs but i, I have to wonder it's like what did Sam Raimi see in the drive-ins in Michigan that inspired his stuff? And I, I wouldn't put it past him to have seen this film. Right, right. Interesting. Um, what was the, the deal with the water? Whenever Fang had water poured on him, he somehow either became better at fighting or he was sometimes impervious to stuff. And it especially came into play at the end when uh, Leung's fists were on fire. He uh -huh. used the water to defeat him. Yeah, and that may be something in the Taoist superstitions that I'm not familiar with that's reviving. Maybe it was explained in the longer version. I have to wonder if they cut it down, because this is a very short film. It's like yeah. 78 minutes or so. And I have to wonder if they cut it down because they didn't think audiences outside of Asia were going to understand any of the, you know, the, the folklore, cultural stuff. Right. You're like, you know, oh, they'll just figure it out for themselves, you know, that, that type of attitude. And it's possible. And maybe the scenes that explained it kind of slowed it down. I don't know. It's like, you know, we, we have we have no <laughs> way of knowing because no one's ever interviewed Washon or, or any of these cats about how stuff was made at the time. Well, and it's interesting, too, because, because uh, you know, even even me, as much as I look into it, I can't I can't always figure out, OK, maybe the water means something. I'm not sure. Right. I know when a villain wears white, white is the color of death and in Chinese culture. So, right. you know, you'll often see villains wearing white or they got white hair, or they do the laughing and everything. And that's, that's a cultural thing. So maybe there's something about the water in Taoist spells. Like maybe it clears off a spell or something. I'm not sure. Right. It purifies or something. And right, right, right. What's interesting too, because the Taoist priest puts the symbols on like post-it notes and slaps yeah. them on people. And <laughs> I thought right, that was an interesting 
yeah, that's a talisman. So they're it's like the spells. Or it's it's hard to you know, like I said, you can think of crucifixes of vampires, but I'm not sure if there's anything similar in in uh, European folklore or, um, or African or, or whatever. It's like I guess there's. You know, I guess Joseph Campbell is not available. <laughs> He's yeah. not alive and available <laughs> interview if he knows anything about this stuff. But uh, but there's definitely some sort of, you know, it's like we always talk about the Noah's Ark flood story is is in other cultures, right? And you have to wonder if some of these traditions are, you know, there's a version of this in Catholicism or um, the Viking religions or you know other other folklore or religious traditions. Right. Right. Trying to remember too. There was a movie I saw a long time ago. I don't think I did a show on it, but there was a dude who was sitting down meditating, and he was fighting some kind of supernatural force. It was like a Chinese movie, and there was something to do with like all these little pieces of paper that were flying back and forth in the room that had uh, had the symbols on them. Mm-hmm. And of course, I'm I'm doing a terrible job of trying to recall what it was, but but I've seen them use that, you know, I, I, for lack of a better term, post-it notes. To um, yeah, know, to fight supernatural stuff. <laughs> right, and that's all. That's all Taoist. Uh, it's Taoist sorcery, or you know, it's their version of voodoo. Um, there's a Yin Wu Ping film called The Miracle Fighters, and the it, the original production title was Oriental Voodoo, <laughs> and it was released in Hong Kong around Halloween, which is odd because I didn't think they had Halloween there, you know. But uh, maybe they just kind of acknowledge it as a commercial thing, but. Um, Miracle Fighters was apparently jointly released. It was a Golden Harvest production, but it was jointly released by Shaw Brothers and Golden Harvest at the same time, so they were not rivals of that that year. Uh, but Miracle Fighters is pretty much all this crazy, uh, like Taoist sorcery. And Yin Wu Ping's films favor a lot of Taoist um, philosophy and tradition, and also the the myth and the folklore and the sorcery and the voodoo, whatever you want to call it, you know. And um, I wonder if that's it's just better known if you're into really deep Taoist theology. Who knows? But, right, um, right. But it, it's something to do with that. And there's not a lot of American or English friendly books readily available for us to yeah. to really read up on it. You have to do a lot of research to find out about it because I guess there's presumed there's no audience for any of this stuff. Right, right. That's true. That's true. I thought the makeup on the zombies, you know, it was obviously horrible, but it worked. You know, they, they kind of reminded me of the Blind Dead movies where you sort of have right. this, like, slapdash paper mache kind of looking thing. But right, I, right. I expect that from these kinds of movies. So it, it didn't bother me that they, they looked, you know, phony. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I guess it's to look like a, a mummified corpse or which is going to be a skeleton. You know, it's not going to be a guy in a costume or whatever. And um, I think I always thought that was what was cool about the Lucio Fulci and and other Italian directors when they did zombie films is you would have the actors in the cheap looking oatmeal pasted on their face or whatever. But you would also have like the weird mannequin zombies kind of rising out of bushes or trees and stuff. And that was far creepier. And they did a little of that in Return of the Living Dead. But because Romero never did it, we don't think about it very much. But uh, but I always thought it was it was kind of gave it that old school uh, scary supernatural vibe, you know, not very 19th century yeah. horror or whatever. It's like that. That's why I like about that effect. I, I don't think, you know, when you have like if you just had Hong Kong stuntmen in zombie costumes, it'd be kind of dull and expected right. <laughs> because, you know, if Billy Chong hits them or or 
one of the villains hits them, they're going to have to do a backflip. <laughs> just or the, <laughs> the the crazy somersault roll they do when they get punched. You know, that's it's like uh, how do they do that and still be able to walk a year later? You know? Right. <laughs> Oh, man. And it's so funny, too, because I thought they were, at least in the first third, there were definitely a handful of genuinely scary moments. I mean, yeah, yeah it was a comedy, but it, it was effective on the horror level to some degree. Not, you know, throughout the whole film, but there were moments. Well, why do you want to check out, after uh, we record this show, when you get a chance to watch another Billy Chong film, is find Kung Fu from Beyond the Grave. Okay. It was Billy Chong's first supernatural Hong Kong Kung Fu film, and Lo Lee was the villain. And oh, it wow. actually has Dracula makes an appearance and it predates Encounters of the Spooky Kind. Huh. So it may have actually inspired Samo to make Encounters of the Spooky Kind because uh, but it has some of the the Chinese traditions and such like uh, they're leaving the food out for the spirits as an offering during um, some whatever supernatural night it is. And uh, I think I remember there was a cool scene. I haven't watched it in years, but there's this cool scene where a, uh, a chicken or turkey is is offered and and it gets up and starts hopping <laughs> just <laughs> but i always love that scene it's like it's pretty cool because you're not going to get that in an old hammer film or anything yeah oh yeah <laughs> william castle didn't come up with that for the tingler you know right <laughs> oh man that's so funny um they were, uh what was i going to say too about the zombies they um oh that's what i was going to ask you you know there's more vampires it seems in this movie than than zombies Right. Um, so, what do you? What is your take on, you know, in terms of being a post Night of the Living Dead film, zombie film? Right. Do you th- do you think this um, really took some influence from that, or because? No, I don't. I um, I think, I think the Kung Fu Zombie was sort of just a more commercial expert or export title at the time because Lucio Fulci's movies. Did like zombie and um, George Romero's Dawn of the Dead was released in other countries as zombie, and right. I think that was just a better marketing title. But I mean, obviously our our Korean villain is a, a vampire. He's not a zombie at all. Right. But I don't think vampire was in as a very commercial title uh, name in English. You know, for zombie was the hot name at the time. So if you said kung fu zombie. You know, that just tells the audience what they're in for, but probably nobody really cared once the fighting got started, that uh, our villain obviously has fangs and is trying to suck his blood or whatever he's doing. But but yeah, I would say Fulci's stuff was big in Hong Kong. I think his stuff did really well there. Okay, so yeah, you could definitely see the influence then here. Yeah. I thought they did a good job, too, with um, with the father, when not only when he was possessed... Um, but even just like with the faking of the heart attacks, is the, was that some kind of Chinese humor that maybe we weren't getting? Because like the I, first I, couple I of times, I think it was. Yeah, yeah I, I didn't know whether was. I should be laughing. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, was well, just like at the beginning when you suddenly heard Lips Incorporated, Funky Town. Mm. When the zombies are the, are reanimated or or whatever they're doing, they're hopping. It's like suddenly you hear that music, and it's like that must have been a hit song in Hong Kong at the time, and they thought <laughs> the audience would get a kick out of hearing it, and. Uh, the stuff with the heart attack, there is a lot in Chinese slapstick humor. Um, the only stuff we tend to get is what's inspired by either Hollywood comedians or British films like uh, Carry Up. The Carry On films are very popular in Hong Kong. Oh, okay. And, or were. And because, uh, you know, it was a British colony, so right. British entertainment was very popular. So they picked up on a lot of that stuff, Monty Python and um, Carry On. And uh, that stuff we get, but the actual Chinese humor stuff could be a bit mystifying. You know, like a, a friend of mine went to see 
Aces Go Places 5 to go back to that film in a theater when it opened in uh, San Francisco's Chinatown. And he saw, he and his girlfriend saw it in an audience of, you know, it was local Chinese. And he said they were just laughing at all these things that he didn't get, like he wasn't picking up on. And, <laughs> And he said, it seems like they would laugh at stuff that's really unsophisticated, infantile, like somebody gets electrocuted and their hair stands up. Like, they, <laughs> like the local audience is something that was hilarious. So it's, um, they're obviously going to pick up on things we don't, we don't grab. And I remember when I saw some Stephen Chow movies in Chinatown, and a lot of Stephen Chow's humor is very much into Cantonese slang. And it's based on that type of talk. So there's all these jokes I'm not getting. The audience is just cracking up. Right, and I'm right. just seeing him on screen say hello to a girl, and everybody is just roaring. <laughs> like it's the funniest. And I'm like, okay, clearly I got to learn every aspect of Cantonese to get the joke here. But, right. but that's why his stuff was so popular at the time. And there was but there was one scene though I thought was genuinely hilarious. It was where um, you know Lou in in the father's body is trying to kill Fang, but every time Fang looks over at him, he's pretending he's doing something else. Yes, and that was and hilarious. That, yeah, and that's that type of. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> what would you call it? Shell game that they, they do with their humor that, and it, it's also very British. It's, it's a very much a carry on type of thing. And, and That's yeah, true. yeah, yeah, that pacing is very, it's always hilarious that it works. And, um, I think a problem, you know, we thought we watch something like this and we'll crack up at stuff and, and you kind of wonder why you don't see that type of humor anymore. And I feel like Hollywood has lost its ability to have slapstick. Yeah. Whereas we watch just stuff and they were carrying on the tradition. They were keeping it going. And um, and even if you watch a Stephen Chow film from this century, there's a lot of visual humor and slapstick. And it's a lost art because in Hollywood, everything is a sort of whiny Judd Apatow type of thing. Yeah. You know, it's all it's all wannabe Woody Allen, like late 70s Woody Allen type stuff. It, right. Instead of being like sleeper it's more like annie hall it's like everybody wants to make that type of comedy and, and nobody wants to do like the really funny raw slapstick like a three stooges or uh jerry lewis type of thing from the 50s or something and to me that stuff is still hysterically funny oh yeah absolutely and and, uh, and it's obvious like in hong kong they were they were they loved that humor and they were keeping it going and well, we we just lost it. We just okay, Mel Brooks can do that. He's going to retire soon, you know. Right. We, we've just kind of forgotten <laughs> that visual humor thing. It's it's missing. It's 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 really unfortunate. Right. Know? Well, even like the Peter Sellers stuff in uh, you yeah, know, Pink Panther. Yeah. Yes, yes. It's like the what what's the highlight there? Peter Sellers fighting with Cato, right. <laughs> <laughs> through floors of the apartment. That's always hilarious, no matter what. And I think those films were very popular in Hong Kong. That's probably why they made Return of the Pink Panther there, uh, or no, Revenge of the Pink Panther, I believe, where oh, okay. you think he's dead, and um, and and it's in Hong Kong. The finale is in Hong Kong. But yeah, it's like those those were popular around the world. And I've seen I've seen Huey Brothers comedies that duplicate those jokes or rip them off. And uh, they, they were popular around the world, and it's gone. We don't have that anymore. I, I didn't see the Steve Martin reboots. No, I didn't. Uh, but I doubt they had any of that type of humor in them. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's funny too about this movie is uh, talking about the humor. I liked the cartoonish aspect, especially towards the end and the, the end fight. It reminded me of Kung Fu Hustle. Right. Which was that a Stephen Chow film? Yeah, Stephen Chow directed. Uh, okay. And, and sort of, it's interesting about him is. He, he has in the tabloids, they'll claim he's an egomaniac and all this. But if you watch Kung Fu Hustle, he steps aside for about an hour and lets all the supporting cast be funny. Yeah. 
and and I th- I think that's the best comedy of the 21st century so far. It's like I have never seen a movie just so packed with laughter, keep a story going, and this so-called egomaniac star actually steps aside for the middle of the film and lets this these co-stars who are much older take over the comedy and they're hilarious. Right. And, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's it's a it's a brilliant visual slapstick comedy, and I think it was designed to be more exportable to America, but. Over here, it was a flop in theaters, but did great on home video. Like that's where people were discovered it, and uh, <laughs> the uh, the the uh, the proof of quality, I think, was when Bill Murray actually said, "You can hold a wake for Hollywood comedy." Now that I've seen Kung Fu Hustle, now that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I think that's like the best quote ever. So that's that's a good way of looking that's at hilarious. it. Hilarious. But yeah, that, I I love that film, and I, he's he's made other comedies since that I think are are almost as good or just as good, like the. Uh, May Rin Yao, which is the mermaid, and that's a terrific comedy. And but they're not really appreciated over here because uh, you know we don't push that idea of slapstick being good. It's for some reason, and I don't know if you felt this culturally as I have. Like that's for kids. That's infantile. That's Three Stooges stuff. It's like no. It's like I'm almost fifty, man. I still laugh at that stuff. Oh yeah, no, I feel funny the same is way. funny. You know <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Oh man, and it's it's interesting too. You know, for me personally, um, I understand movies like this where you just gotta kind of put your brain on on hold and just enjoy it for the entertainment value. But there's always that little part of me that I don't want to say nitpick, but you're always looking for the attention to detail. And, and one thing that I really enjoyed in this movie was when they were trying to pull Lou's ghost and the father's body apart, uh-huh. and I just liked that attention to detail and the way it was visually illustrated. I, I thought it worked, you know? Right. I mean, do you agree? I agree because their timing, you know, like I said, they've never lost their timing on this, this type of humor. They didn't, like, I think if somebody in Hollywood tried to make this type of movie, you know, a slapstick heavy comedy like Jerry Lewis made in the early 60s, they'd have the timing wrong because we kind of lost our practice at it. And right. over there, particularly in this era, they had not lost their humor timing. And it was just like, you know, they'll, they'll get away with these gags and it works because, you know, a lot of comedy is pacing and timing and getting the setup just right in the punchline. And they never lost that touch. You know, it's certainly not this in this era. And right. uh, yeah, I, I love it. It's like they're very it's funny what they'll ignore, like what you'll see in a Hong Kong action film is sometimes a character will die. You'll see that actor come back in another role later on in the film. Yeah, because you know, <laughs> I'll just assume nobody's paying attention. But then they'll pay attention to detail about certain things and. It, it kind of amazes me, and I don't know if it's saved in editing or because, I mean, their editors are the best. Like, the way they, you know, you think about all the editing they have to do for these fight scenes. And um, and in this film, I don't think they did master shots, you know, like a master shot of the fight. They, it's all done developed out of breakdowns. So if they apply that ability to the comedy, I mean, they're going to be, like, aces, man. They're going to be the best. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like the, the editors have to pay very close attention to the stuff. And it's They do a spectacular job. Oh, they really do. The editing in this movie is superior. And it, it does make me think of a later film, which is not a Chinese film, but um, Peter Jackson's uh, Dead Alive, also known yeah. as uh, Brain Dead, because that movie not only hits every mark in terms of the comedic timing and the editing, but his level of attention to detail in that film... Mm-hmm. Is one of those ones that when you go back and rewatch it, you pick up new things every time. Right. You know, and that just I, uh, reminds me of this kind of movie. 
I would not be surprised if Peter Jackson had seen this, and mainly because I I remember when um, what was that first movie he did Brain was it not Brain Dead but oh, um, um uh, the the yeah with the, the aliens alien, yeah yeah the cannibal alien movie whatever bad taste bad taste yes and uh, I remember he did an interview with Gorezone and he said that most horror gore films were not shown in New Zealand because censorship was very strict on home video and theaters so he would get his gore enjoyment from like monty python movies and uh, i wouldn't be surprised if he was also watching kung fu films like kung fu zombie for that type of horror kick right so that so I, nothing at this point nothing would surprise me but i've always felt his stuff had that kind of hong kong editing influence and, and and you know it wasn't trendy in the 80s to admit you were inspired by that stuff right because <laughs> that was seen globally as inferior cinema of you know uh you know, third world, or even though it's from a British crown colony, yeah, it's like it's. Uh, but it was seen as like subpar or amateurish. You know, I I understand like John Woo had a hard time getting deals with Hollywood studios because the executives were like, yeah, but he makes films that are shot without sound, right? Like, can he make stuff over here? <laughs> you know, it's just like there's a type of kind of head up the rear thinking that um, yeah. keeps these guys very myopic and I think that's why cinema is so bland and bad now and I hardly ever go to the movies anymore you know yeah. unless my kid wants to see something but it's just like I'm not enthused about anything because I, <laughs> I feel like we've lost something we've lost that kind of you know one, one common theme on the Midnight Movie Cowboys is Hollywood seemed to have perfected cinema in the 30s and 40s and it's amazing how far away we've we've gotten from that right and right. how bad things are today and unsat you know you'll go see a movie and there's no ending there's no third act or real finale and it's underwritten and um it's just or it's and it's too long like everything's over two hours and yet you watch something from the 30s or 40s you get a 75 minute movie and it gives you all you need right right and it's and it's beginning middle and end and you're satisfied watching that it's like wow why can't they do things like that today it's funny. I was pleasantly surprised. Actually, there was one that just came out. I think it's in the theater and on HBO Max uh, at the same time. It's called Malignant. And right, right. Everybody's the, talking about that. Oh, my God. The last third of that movie is batshit crazy. And I, <laughs> I love movies that are batshit crazy. And it really, it, it blew me away because I was not expecting it to go in the direction it went in. And that's a James Wan film, right? He's, yes. Uh, yeah. He's Australian, or he's actually from Australia. And he, I think he's very inspired by... You know, the old stuff that we always dig and can't get enough of and, yeah. and talk about. I think he's heavily, because I remember, I watched, I watched Aquaman, and I'm not crazy about the uh, the superhero stuff. And even though I grew up loving comic books, the movies are not very interesting or satisfying to me. But I did admire the way that film seemed to just bring in every Edgar Rice Burroughs-style influence <laughs> that possible and just over-flooded the film. I mean... I didn't love it or anything, but I did admire the way that ju he just went crazy with, okay, prehistoric monsters are coming out of the water. Now. Right. <laughs> let's, let's get the most bang for your buck out of this scene. You know, it's like, and I, I think a lot of that's just because I'm bored by CGI effects. My eyes register that stuff is very dull. Like I'd rather have on camera. Right. Horror. Practical and effects. Monsters yeah. and everything. Yeah. I'll, I'll take, put a guy in a suit. It's like, that's just as good. At least he's there. Yeah. You know, it doesn't look weightless <laughs> like all this CGI creatures flying around the air or whatever and speaking of practical effects one thing i really loved in this movie is that whenever somebody fell or was thrown or whatever it was obviously a like so obviously a dummy and i just yeah. thought that was hilarious <laughs> i loved yeah, it I, 
I wondered if they intended that to be funny. And maybe <laughs> that was part of the humor because they really play up the comedy in this. And it's like, it's not promoted as a comedy. And I will say Kung Fu from Beyond the Grave was not as comedic as this. And here they just went crazy with the slapstick. And I, I often think the dummies were, maybe they were going for like an SCTV type effect because <laughs> one of the best jokes at SCTV is whenever they have dummy deaths, like it's always hysterical. Right, but, right. Uh, here it's just like, I kind of think that was part of the tongue-in-cheek aspect of the film. It's, it's just a guess. Like, hey, man, I would love to interview Wash on, you know? Oh, yeah. And see what he was intending here. But his stuff always kind of had a sense of humor. Even Inframan has very funny stuff, like uh, Inframan fighting the uh, the insect creature that he uh, he grows. He makes himself giant to the insect creature's size, which we're never told this is one of Inframan's abilities. Right. And beats up the creature. The creature goes down back to human size, and Inframan steps on him like a bug. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, obviously, that's meant for laughs. Because <laughs> it's a very cruel, unheroic thing for Inframan to do. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, there that's is hilarious. definitely a sense of humor there. There's also a scene where they've taken the professor and... Um, and his daughter to the monster island or, you know, the monsters, the creatures hideout cave or whatever. It's in Kowloon Bay, obviously. And, uh, and there's just a shot of the professor smiling with the creatures. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's just certain scenes in that movie that just always will crack me up. And I think they were put there intentionally to be funny. I gotta, I gotta watch that again. I have that on DVD. But <laughs> one of the scenes I thought was hilarious was Luang is spinning Fang around like a windmill and there's this cartoon wind sound. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's all very over-the-top Monty Python-type humor. And I think because we as Americans, all this stuff is, is uh, presented to us like it's grindhouse. Right. Blood and guts type stuff. No, no, this, they, they have fun. It's yeah. Like, they were making these superhero movies in the 70s. We just didn't call them that. You know? Right. It's like they were having a blast. They were having fun, man. They wanted you to laugh at this and, and just have a good time, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, John, your final thoughts on Kung Fu Zombie, and would you recommend it? Oh, yeah. Highly recommend this film. Um, I, I do recommend other Billy Chong films. I think he had a, a, an interesting, uh, very uh, entertaining career in Hong Kong. Like, there's not a bad movie in the bunch, as far as I'm concerned. I think they're all worth watching, and they're all different. It's not like you'll watch... Um, a Jackie Chan film and you know several of them are just like the others or whatever it's the same stuff they're all different and yet Washon directed most of them and um, it's totally worth checking out it's a very fun comedy I think um, your your listeners will totally dig like the possible influence on Peter Jackson and Sam Raimi if anything and they can judge for themselves it's always fun to watch stuff uh, with that in mind absolutely absolutely I liked it first of all I liked it a lot better than Shaolin Hellgate <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you that. better title, but not as not as fun. Right, right. You know, and I, I just found it to be so silly and cartoonish, and it was, it was definitely downright stupid. But I loved it, and I, you know, I loved the fast pace. I liked the the Sam Raimi style freneticism. The fight scenes were really good. Um, everything about it was enjoyable, and it was just a fun ride. Um, it it may not be to everyone's taste though. I know a few people that would probably hate this movie and wouldn't be able to get past the silliness of it. But I think, right. you know, if those of you listening are into Kung Fu movies and are open-minded, you should definitely check this out because, you know, once you get into it, as stupid as it is, it's, it's impossible not to love this movie. 
yeah, it's not trying to be serious. It is not a pretentious film at all. It is just trying to entertain you and make you laugh and make your jaw drop at some of the stunt work. And I just, you can't go wrong with it. It's so fun. Right, right, exactly. So, John, thanks for joining me today. Oh, always, always glad to. Excellent. Can you tell our audience where to find you online? Uh, MidnightMovieCowboys.com. And it's, uh, like I said, you'll love it or hate it. Uh, it is definitely different, and it's not for everybody. Kind of like Kung Fu Zombie itself. Yeah. <laughs> and, John, you've got an open invitation, obviously, to come back on the show whenever you want. We'd love to talk sure. to you about more stuff. And, you know, i got to get on Midnight Movie Cowboys sometime, too, and talk about movies with you guys. Oh, yeah, yeah. We'll have to do a crossover. We're, we're doing, I think, our one of our... Uh, we're working on a show right now. We're doing a crossover with another podcast, and we're also in talks to do a, a crossover with another podcast that's kind of on our thing. So it's, nice. it's a very – this is a constant thing. But, you know, the problem is always scheduling because we record exactly. late at night, and uh, we're in different time zones. Like, I think when we record, Stu is there on a weekday morning. <laughs> you know, and he's just taking his kids to school. <laughs> and so uh, the, the, the perils of, you know uh, – Global uh, global scheduling is, is very evident here. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty flexible with time. I've got my setup changed up a bit so that, you know, late nights are actually doable for me now. So, right, right. We'll, we'll um, have to talk about some retro stuff or something. You know, oh, absolutely. Like, you know, we keep it with the vibe of your show. Yeah, awesome. And we've done a few crossovers. We did a crossover with um, a, a, gr- uh, a show called Lions of Legend. They, they're like, they do basically a D&D game uh, on the podcast weekly um i did a crossover with a happy days podcast and a general hospital podcast and uh like a couple oh, wow. others so wow yeah cultural blend right there oh yeah yeah it's wicked fun so it's always 1981 here i guess oh, there you go <laughs> luke and laura <laughs> yes <laughs> oh man all right well thanks a lot man and we'll talk to you soon all right man Okay, folks, thanks for joining us today for our special 2021 13 Days of Hallowtober series where we focus on modern zombie films. You can send your feedback to thenisnow42 at gmail.com. You can also join in the conversation at our Facebook Then Is Now podcast group. Then Is Now podcast is a proud member of the Dorkening Podcast Network, so please be sure to check out the other great shows there at thedorkening.com. You can also visit our website at havenpodcasts.com where you'll find our sister show, The East meets the West, in which we discuss Shaw Brothers films and Spaghetti Western movies. And while you're there, please click on the Patreon and Public links to get some exclusive stuff, especially a show that you cannot get anywhere else. And Then Is Now is on YouTube, so please visit youtube.com slash user slash UncleDeath1 to get the latest videos as well as other fun videos. Please subscribe to our YouTube page and also share the video versions of our podcast with your friends and get them to subscribe as well. Don't forget to go wherever you download your podcast from and leave us a great review so that more listeners can find us. You can find us on all the podcasting apps, especially the big three, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. Class dismissed. Now podcast is intended for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. Sounds, music, and clips played during this podcast are the property of their copyright holders. All original content is copyright Jupiter Media.
For more shows like the one you just heard, check out the Dorkening Podcast Network at thedorkening.com.